Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. And welcome to it. What a day. <laughs> Our number for the next three hours, and I'm going to need you all to call in to make sense of all this, is 866-997-4748. 866-997-GRIT. Wow, we have a lot to get to tonight and a lot of guests to get to it with. I want to thank everyone who called in last night. And uh, I want to thank uh, the members of Living Color, one of uh, the best rock bands to come out of this country in the last 35 years, for joining us, Corey Glover and Vernon Reed. You can hear that on demand or on the podcast or on the app or wherever you get your audio. For tonight, we have some great guests. Kareen Hajar of the Boston Globe, who um, also writes for uh, New Republic. Uh, she was shadowing Chris Christie in New Hampshire and wrote a really interesting piece about what our good friend, the former New Jersey governor, who left office, I think, with 15% approval. Yeah, what he's up against uh, on the campaign trail. Tomorrow night is the second debate. We'll also have Bettina Love talking about education reform. Her new book is a scathing indictment of how the public school system has been abandoned and weaponized against black children since the Reagan administration. We're also going to have the great Lee Papa, the rude pundit here, screaming about whoever he wants to scream about. Very long day. We we taped an interview with a with a with a psychic today. We had Matt Fraser. We we did a, a, a taping with. Now I've never had a psychic on this show. I've interviewed him on some TV shows before, but you know, it's too much politics. We're trying to find like fun stuff, um, and and this guy, it's it's ooh, it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> I like, can't wait to play it. And then one of the most exciting interviews for me of the year. We just taped an interview this afternoon at the SiriusXM studios. With a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the drummer for maybe the greatest, maybe the most influential rock band in the world, definitely the hippest, uh, Phil Selway of Radiohead, who has a terrific and, I mean, gorgeous new album out called Strange Dance. We've never had a member of Radiohead on this show before. Man, it was exciting, and it's a really great and lovely conversation. I can't wait to play that for you. So it's it's not going to be all politics this fall. Trust me. It Look, we are looking at these primary races, and Donald Trump having seven criminal trials. And then, of course, Joe Biden trying to get done anything he can get done with a divided Congress and maybe another government shutdown and another impeachment inquiry. It's going to be crazy. We promise to bring you all the political news 
And we also promise to deviate from the political news and bring some fun, pop culture, mental health, maybe even some uh, psychics talking about death. It was a pretty interesting conversation. People of Earth, let us welcome back to the show our executive producer, Chris Hauselt, who we missed very much over the last couple of days. I'm glad everything is going okay with you, Chris. I hope your parole officer is satisfied with what you did, and we're really happy to have you back here. Thanks. I'm going to have to go in and do a, do a new string of seven. I understand. But yes, you make sure if you're going to do a bit, you do it in a federal pen. OK, I don't want you doing your you go. Don't do a state prison, Chris. I've told you this many times. If there's one thing my dad taught me, you know what? If you're going to do a crime, put a stamp on it. Then it's mail fraud. And then you go to a cushy federal pen. Trust me. This is the difference between Otisburg okay. and Rikers, Chris. It's the difference between Otisburg and Rikers. I'm looking out for you. Sorry. You. I appreciate it. I'm in a crime state of mind. Hey, man, it's going to be a great night. Today is the birthday of George Gershwin, Winnie Mandela, T.S. Eliot, the album Abbey Road, Serena Williams, and Jack LaLanne. Let's do a show. Now, uh, let me quote from my upcoming Dr. Seuss book about all of Donald Trump's crimes. I I read some of this a few weeks ago when I came back. Um, But uh, the first one, the first trial, you haven't heard much, I would reckon. The Trump org civil fraud suit starts October 2nd. False assets and net worth and business fraud lies. A.G. Tish James knows he lies about size. Her 250 million suit made Trump hysteric. Best of all, she included Don Jr. and Eric. Pretty big story. And I want to talk about what a judge just did to Donald Trump's ability to do business in the state of New York this evening. Before we get there, though, uh, I can't overstate it. This is and has been a day of history. Um, In a first for a sitting United States president, Joe Biden visited the striking UAW workers on the picket line in Michigan. This has never happened before. We have never seen any president, even the pro-labor presidents, show this kind of support for union labor. And I'm telling you, as much as Biden's campaign needs this, America needs it even more. Uh, Also, the number of Senate Democrats calling for the resignation of New Jersey's uh, Senator Robert Menendez exploded today, including his fellow New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. Thank you, Senator Booker. We knew you had it in you. I mean, the dam broke. They are all calling for him. Not all of them, but a lot of them are calling for him to resign. And a whole lot of Republicans are calling on him to stay there. I understand why. I think George Santos should stay there as long as possible. Uh, The Supreme Court rejected the state of Alabama's request to allow their map of voting districts that are unfairly tilted in favor of white Alabama citizens. Yeah. Just think about that. Imagine being too racist for this Supreme Court. And a federal judge in Texas has declared that uh, Texas's state ban on drag shows is unconstitutional. Who would have known that liberty applies to things that right-wing people don't like? And finally, uh, Kevin McCarthy has been publicly reduced to groveling and begging for Joe Biden to bail him out. The hostage is asking to be rescued from his own kidnappers, while still not saying anything that would ever upset his kidnappers. It's, oh, it's 10 kinds of pathetic. Let's get to it. Biden did it, folks. He did it. I I did an op-ed on the show last week saying repeatedly, Biden has to be seen on a picket line. He has to go there. He has to go there. And a couple people told me I was crazy. Presidents can't do that. The Democratic Party relies too heavily on donations from big industry to do that. Well, guess what? He did it. And it's beautiful. And it's the sort of thing that actually made me say today, I wish my father was alive to see this. My father 
worked for a union. He worked for the Teachers Federal Credit Union. And today was a great day for anyone who has ever cared about labor not getting screwed over by management. First, I want to play uh, the Falls It Boy, UAW Chief Sean Fain. Here he is welcoming President Biden to the picket line in Michigan. In this union, the members are the highest authority. In this country, the people are the highest authority. And so today, I just want to take a moment to stand with all of you, with our president, and say thank you to the president. Thank you, Mr. President, for coming. Thank you for coming to stand up with us in our generation's defining moment. And we know the president will do right by the working class. And when we do right by the working class, you can leave the rest of us because we're going to take care of this business. I mean, like a, a, a news story that fills my heart. I'm not used to this sort of thing happening. Now, of course, Biden also endorsed the union's demands for a 40 percent raise for all the striking members of the United Worker Auto Workers in Michigan. Now, of course, they're never going to get a 40 percent raise. Right. Everyone knows this except angry conservatives, but they're not going to get a 40 percent raise. The number was symbolic because that's the raise the heads of these auto companies gave themselves while sitting on record profits. And if you want to know how negotiation works in their latest publicly disclosed offer, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, formerly known as Chrysler, they offered wage increases of about 20 to 21% already. The negotiations work. Here is President Biden speaking to the picketing workers, offering support and explaining how and why the big three automakers have to support the folks that made them successful. The UAW picket lines when I was a senator since This old man is making it really hard for me to be a, a, a bitter, cynical leftist. I got to tell you, tomorrow it's Donald Trump's turn to fly to Michigan to try to show how he's so pro-worker, except he's not. And it won't be because Joe Biden showed up today on the picket line because he was invited by the union. That same union has told Trump to stay away. So Trump is going to give a speech to mostly retired UAW workers and a non-union manufacturing plant. I mean, he's really going to try and pretend I, I, I he's he's going to try and have a photo op to make it seem like he's on their side. And, you know, right wing media is going to try to make it seem like he really is. UAW President Sean Fain called Trump's rally pathetic irony. And he was on CNN tonight and said he sees no point in meeting with him because Trump serves a billionaire class. What Biden did today was an historic reset. It wasn't just a smart campaign move. It was reminding every American with a job who it is that's actually fighting for workers 
as opposed to who's just telling workers things they think the workers want to hear while really always consistently fighting for management. And it's going to be very awkward for Donald Trump on that plane flight, because I don't know if you heard, today was not a good one in Magaland. A federal judge in New York found that Donald Trump and Alan Weisselberg and the Trump Organization and Donald Trump's two oldest sons, Fredo and Shemp, have committed fraud and he's ordered their certificates canceled. They were declared completely liable of persistent and repeated fraud. And his entire real estate empire was stripped of its business licenses in New York. This is ahead of the trial next week that's hitting them with more than $250 million in penalties for bank fraud. There is already a meme of Trump Tower now being used as a spirit Halloween store. I, I, it's, oh, it's beautiful. This was stunning. I mean, we knew this judge had had it with Donald Trump and his lawyers, but he's essentially ordered the complete dissolution of the Trump Organization, founded by Fred Trump and Alan Weisselberg. This is the empire that made him famous. It's also the empire from which he lost a billion dollars. Don't forget to ask your right-wing friends anytime. Can you name any other president in history who lost a billion dollars? The Trump Organization and its sister companies are going to be sent into receivership to be under the control of a court-appointed lawyer. This judge struck down every defense Trump's lawyers brought up during the course of this investigation. For three years, this has been going on. And it's been a year since she filed the lawsuit. Judge Arthur Ngoran had a 35-page opinion and ripped apart what he said was Trump's bogus arguments, and he summed up the entire defense as a fantasy world, not the real world. Those arguments, he said, glaringly misrepresent the law and invoke the time loop in the film Groundhog Day. I mean, and then he got started. He ripped the Trumps. He ripped the lawyers for dragging this on with their legal arguments that delayed things and wasted the court's time. And again, that's what they did. Trump's entire M.O. is delay, delay, delay. They kept on filing motions saying this attorney general doesn't have the authority to hold them accountable. The judge said in defendant's world, rent regulated apartments are worth the same as unregulated apartments. Restricted land is worth the same as unrestricted land. Restricts can evaporate into thin air. All illegal acts are untimely if they stem from one untimely act and square footage is subjective. This is before the trial even starts. Okay, the trial starts on October 2nd, but the ruling just pretty much gave Tish James almost a full victory. What this means is the trial next week will mostly just focus on the damages. That's it. He's been rendered guilty. They're just going to see how much of Donald Trump's bank account will be left after this. Trump and... Eric and Don Jr. and Weisselberg and these executives are going to be fighting off accusations of bank and insurance fraud at this trial, which is going to run from next week, probably until December. And Tish James is trying to punish them all for lying about their property values. I mean, they lied so they would overestimate the value of some things. They would underestimate the value of other things deliberately just to cheat. This is exactly what happened in E. Jean Carroll's second defamation case, you know. Think about it. I mean, the judge said, no, you're already guilty. This Trial will only be to see how much you have to pay. And Judge Engeron also decided to impose sanctions on the Trump's lawyers over Tish James's accusation that his lawyers have acted unprofessionally by raising all these stupid arguments and delaying the case this long. And this is sending a signal to all of Donald Trump's other criminal trials. He has six other criminal trials in addition to the one that starts next week. The judge said, ultimately, sanctions are the only way to impress upon defendants' attorneys the consequences of engaging in repetitive, frivolous motion practice after this court, affirmed by the appellate division, expressly warned them against doing so. There's six other criminal trials. There's the pyramid scheme trial. There's the E. Jean Carroll case. 
And there's um, the two Jack Smith federal cases. There's Alvin Bragg's New York case with Stormy Daniels and the hush money for campaign finance fraud. And finally, there is Bonnie Willis's case in Georgia with Trump and 18 co-defendants. In every one of these cases, Trump's whole M.O. has been to delay as long as he can until he's president again, presumably when he can throw them out. But the judge himself found in his ruling that Trump lied about multiple real estate assets to insurers and banks for years. Trump had inflated his true net worth by billions of dollars. Brothers and sisters, he's lost his New York fraud trial. There's huge financial penalties coming to him. This is after he had to pay $1.2 million earlier this year in fraud for the same organization. He's got these other trials still coming up. He's going to lose his New York businesses. The Trump organization has been ordered to be dissolved as financial fraud. I mean, the judge said he defrauded banks. He defrauded insurers. He built his entire real estate empire by overvaluing his assets and exaggerating what his net worth was so he could get more financing. If you've been paying attention for the last, I don't know, 40 years, you've known it's a vast, elaborate house of cards. And now we're on the verge of the Trump crime family being prohibited from ever doing business in the state of New York. I, I, I don't even know what to say, except Tish James is a hero. Follow her on Twitter. My God. Also, here's some irony. The complete dissolution of the Trump organization proves that Donald destroyed everything he ever inherited from both Barack Obama and his dad. <laughs> but real Americans know it's all just an elaborate leftist hoax to make Trump commit more fraud. And by the way, while we're on the subject, Ivanka was dropped from this case a few months back, but she oversaw development of the Trump org's Baku Azerbaijan Hotel, which was nothing but a money laundering front for Iran's Revolutionary Guard. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Donald Trump took money from them, too. The hotel was never finished. It sits there empty with a couple of maintenance workers going in every day, which means, um, Ivanka, this is a good time for you to finally start caring about kids in cages. <laughs> we have a great show coming up tonight. Our number is 866-997-4748. And can I just give you a little bit of icing? Hunter Biden filed suit this morning against former Trump lawyer, and former star of Borat 2, Rudy Giuliani, and his attorney, Robert Costello, for data violations and invasion of digital privacy. Exactly. I mean, how many times have you had to see Hunter Biden's dick pics on Twitter? I, I, I'm legally a urologist in seven states. I've seen this man's penis so many times. Marjorie Taylor Greene forced me to look at a dick pic. She flashed one on national TV. And now Hunter is suing Giuliani for invasion of digital privacy. It was Giuliani who handed information from Hunter's laptop, which allegedly was left at a Delaware repair shop. It's more likely his phone was hacked, and that's a cover story. But Giuliani was the one who gave this data to the New York Post in October of 2020, thinking, oh, a month before the presidential election, this will destroy Joe Biden for sure. Quote, defendants are among those who have been primarily responsible for what has been described as the total annihilation of plaintiff's digital privacy. This suit was uh, filed in Los Angeles federal court. They are also among those who have been primarily responsible for the total annihilation of the plaintiff's data. This laptop that's been at the center of all these allegations of corrupt business dealings when it's really been used to humiliate a drug addict, humiliate the son of a president, and it really has worked among people who already like Donald Trump. Well, these are the dick pics heard around the world. 
And now we can truly say that Rudolph Giuliani has fallen so far from when we saw him getting undressed with a 15-year-old girl in Borat 2. Okay, quick break. Uh, when we return, let's talk all about Chris Christie. Uh, Kareen Hajar of the Boston Globe will join us. And she's written a really compelling piece about, well, this impossible dream. I happen to think Christie can do a lot better in this race than he's been given credit for. We want to know what you think. We'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. We are at 866-997-4748. I'm very excited to take your calls. A lot of news to cover today, besides the fact that the drummer from radio had recorded an interview with us. First, I'm so pleased to welcome for the first time to this show, Kareen Hajar, who is an opinion writer and editorial board member at the Boston Globe. Uh, she previously completed the Fund for American Studies Joseph Rago Memorial Fellowship for Excellence in Journalism at the Wall Street Journal Editorial Board, Chris's old job. And as an editorial intern at National Review, she covered immigration at the southern border from Del Rio, Texas. Her new piece Chris Christie takes on Mission Impossible in GOP presidential nomination race. And although it's not likely Chris Christie will ever win the nomination, he's raising some very interesting questions about his fellow Republicans that are really hitting home with some New Hampshire voters. What a pleasure to welcome Kareen Hajar to SiriusXM. Thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. I do appreciate it. Um, so I'm, I'm fascinated by your experience with the governor. He's been a guest of this show, and I was always surprised he didn't do better in 2016. He said to me that, you know, Trump was sort of doing his whole act. How do you see him recalibrating for this race? Well, you know, I, th- I think that Trump was doing his whole act, but Christie was just more authentic. Right. Uh, I, I don't, you know, he's he's raising the questions that I think that a lot of Republicans want to hear and raising the points about the the president but it's just the the maga group is is too big and too strong right now um otherwise i think he he would be a very compelling candidate uh he he also struggles just with constituency he left new jersey as the governor with a very low approval rating the maga people don't like him and and uh the people the people on the right who don't like trump think that chrissy might have stuck around too long so uh though he's very compelling 
and really brings up some great points. He um, he'll struggle with constituency. Yeah, he's terrific on TV and he's really, really good in his feet. I've always said that about him. He's polling about three percent, according to Real Clear Politics average. Does he have a path to this nomination without the MAGA faithful? Well, his whole his whole hope is that uh, specifically by focusing on New Hampshire, he'll be able to change the hearts and the minds of, of MAGA voters. And he really he keeps saying he hopes that they will really search their souls at the ballot box and, and you know, think about how Trump isn't really a great model for the GOP going forward. He's not a winning model. And also, most of all, for Christie, he's not a moral leader. Uh, and, and he had a grave moral sin in going against the Constitution at election time. And, and that's really his big shtick right now in New Hampshire. And uh, based on my conversations with folks up there at different campaign events, it seems to be not necessarily winning them over, but they all like it and they all like what he's saying. Again, he's a terrific performer. He's he's easily, to me, the most charismatic in the field. You you write how one of his main battlegrounds will be New Hampshire, where he's made multiple appearances. On September 11th, I went to one. I'm dying to ask, how was your experience and, and how was he and how did he connect with that crowd? Well, just like you said, he is just such a compelling speaker. And you could hear it was raining that night. It was a foggy, rainy night in, in Rye, New Hampshire, uh, up at Scott Brown's farm where he's putting on these different stump speeches. And you could hear the drizzle hit hit the roof there. It was it was incredible because people hold on to every single word that Chris Christie says. He's he's very gifted with rhetoric. But I would say that at the beginning, before he started talking, these are a lot of folks that, for the most part, aren't going to vote for Trump if they're out here shopping for different candidates. And the name I heard the most was Nikki Haley. But everyone said, I'm happy that he's in the race. And they're happy he's in the race because he's raising these questions about Trump. He's also raising policy questions that other Republicans won't get. No, they, they won't get anywhere near. So. Um, entitlement spending, Social Security, Medicaid, it will dry up. And he's the only he's the only candidate willing to talk about it. So people really respect him for that. I'd say that right after his stump speech, you had a lot of the same people who were saying we want to we want Nikki Haley in the White House, kind of uh, scratching their heads a little and, and really looking at Chris Christie as a real contender. And I mean, he's tied for third in New Hampshire right now. So. Uh, his whole hope is that we'll be able to launch him for the rest of the primaries. Yeah, you you refer in your piece to uh, Governor Christie's greatest weakness, his past affiliations with Donald Trump. How is he addressing that at campaign stops? It seems like he's he's going for that Republican voter who supported Donald Trump for four years until January 6th. I don't know how big a demographic there is for people who found that their breaking point. Well, certainly it's going to be it's going to be a challenge for him to make the case. But the way that he deals with his Trump affiliation is head on. He he doesn't dance around it. It's I, I was stunned to hear he didn't even wait for questions on it. He just had that as the, really the main part of his speech. And I think it is compelling for a lot of uh, voters who who did vote for Donald Trump in, in 2020 and in 2016, who are now looking at the former president and thinking, is this really worth the headache? Um, so I think in, in that way, it could be a really useful tactic on Christie's end. But I'm sure that there were non-Trump Republican voters from 2016 who still really don't like Chris Christie for how long yeah. he stuck around. You know, with the news of Bob Menendez, of course, that primary is going to be in nine months for the Republican Party in the state of New Jersey. 
Did you get any insight into why Chris Christie is running for president again? And and do you think his 15 percent approval rating when he left is the reason why he announced he won't be running for that vacant Senate seat or presumably vacant Senate seat? Well, Christie's fashioning this campaign as kind of a fight for the soul of America, as a lot of the Republicans are. Um, and he I think I mean, he is such an authentic speaker that it's easy to believe him. And so I could see that as being part of the reason why he's not running in New Jersey. I think another issue is just he truly did leave with one of the lowest approval ratings for the history of their governorship. Um, And a lot of New Jersey voters saw him as checked out towards the end of his governorship, especially when he announced his run for president. So I think, one, it's unrealistic. But two, he really wants his chance at the White House. What do you expect for the debate tomorrow night? Um, I remember you tweeted how Nikki Haley was the first one to call out Donald Trump at the last debate. And it was fascinating watching Nikki Haley and Mike Pence pummel Vivek Ramaswamy into the ground. Uh, do you think we'll see Chris Christie a bit looser and more unleashed tomorrow? Or will this be Ron DeSantis's time to smile too awkwardly? Well, I, I I wouldn't be surprised to see another awkward DeSantis smile, but I, I do think that Christie, <laughs> I think Christie will be more outspoken. Uh, one of his his lines at the event or at the Scott Brown event up in Rye was that he was upset about the UFO question and he thought that the moderators weren't really taking him seriously with the questions that he was getting. And I'm sure he was grinding his teeth when Haley uh, got that punch in uh, before he did about Trump. So I anticipate him to really be out there and aggressive right away because uh, that's his shtick. And um, he didn't really get to showcase that as much as I'm sure he would have liked to at the last debate. Do you think Trump should debate or at some point will debate with his Republican competitors? I don't see him debating in this primary. I mean, who knows with Trump? He's one of the most unpredictable candidates in a long time, but I, he certainly should debate. I mean, he owes it to not only the people that support him uh, to be able to stack him up against the field, but, uh, you know, he is he was the former president of the United States and he owes it to all Americans to uh, see why he deserves that shot again. So I think it's fundamentally undemocratic that he is not debating. I agree. I I think it would certainly be a smart way to change the narrative from this evening's events with the judge and his Trump organization case. Let me ask, looking at tomorrow night's field, who benefits from today's news that Donald Trump's org is essentially going to be canceled? Well, the thing is, the benefit only extends to people who don't like Donald Trump. So um, anyone who's tuning into the debate tomorrow who's seriously considering uh, another Republican candidate for the primary, uh, I I don't know how how big of an audience you're really, how much bigger that audience could get. But I I mean, if if Christie really uses some of that rhetorical magic he has, he, he could really talk about how, hey, here's another headache we have. And this is the reason why I ditched Trump. And this is the reason why you should ditch Trump, too. Now, the question is, if those voters are compelled to ditch Trump, are they going to even go to Christie? Uh, Nikki exactly. Haley is looking. Yeah, Nikki Haley is looking very compelling right now. And um, folks really like her. She's polling very well. Uh, and she was one of the most popular names I heard in New Hampshire. That's interesting. It does seem that Nikki Haley and, and maybe even Tim Scott are, are angling for a VP position. But from the folks you talked to, and I read this in your piece in The Globe, it seems that she was getting a lot of really positive feedback from people who might not have really paid attention to her before. Yeah, I think she just really performed at the last debate. And she had 
I, I think she had the space to she she got the questions to and and she was brave and she hit up Trump right away. Um, and, and again, the people who are really shopping around watching these debates and critically considering another Republican candidate are, are likely to be very sympathetic to, to that lane that she's taking. You got to spend some time with uh, our pal Vivek Ramaswamy and ride the, the, at Scott Brown's barbecue. Uh, that was the day after the first debate, wasn't it? Can you tell us a bit about that experience and what your impression of, uh, of him was? Yeah, I actually I, I met him a couple. Or it was a few days before the debate and then the piece came out the day after. But, you know, I think he's really talented. I don't know exactly what he's going for here. Certainly he's going to gain notoriety from this. Certainly if. You know, if if Trump won the presidency, I think that Vivek has a spot on the cabinet. So so maybe that's the end game of all of this. But I think that he speaks the culture war game the best. And for Republican voters who like the culture war, he's he is really compelling and his polling numbers are are quite stunning. I mean, a year ago, nobody had any idea who this guy was. Um, Mm. So I think that that speaks to uh, not only his energy and his youth, but his ability to to package uh, culture war issues. And he got up there on that stage and it was almost prophetic in a, in a weird way. He had, um, his 10 points for truth and he's out there and it was pouring rain and the sun came out and, and voters were really taken by that. But I think at the end of the day, uh, and we saw this at the debate, he is, he is too off-putting to all voters. Um, he, you know, the culture war only goes so far with, with conservative Republicans and um, you need to be building coalitions and Vivek Ramaswamy can't really build coalitions. Yeah, excellent point. I, I think one thing that our, our Democratic and Republican friends all have in common when it comes to these primaries is what we call uh, the um, presidential campaign loser industrial complex. It seems like a great way to <laughs> audition for book deals or media gigs or higher public speaking. Donald Trump, of course, is facing seven criminal trials between now and the Republican National Convention. How do you see that playing out over the months and months to come? Well, I I see two things coming out of this. One, I think it's only going to energize his deeply entrenched base more. I think that people who are a little tired of him, who think that he was treated unfairly and who might still think that he is treated unfairly. And I mean, Chris Christie, back to Chris Christie, he kind of makes this point. He says, I don't think that all of the indictments are fair or all aspects of them are fair, certainly some more than others, but I just don't think it's worth the headache. And I think that at the end of the day, he did something fundamentally wrong. And so for deeply entrenched MAGA voters, this isn't going to do anything but rile them up. But for other people who are on the fence, and certainly for Republicans who who can't stand the former president, uh, this is just going to be another validation of of their fatigue. Yeah, it's interesting talking about this in in New York State, where there are still Republicans. But um, do you see the party establishment? And I'm not sure what that means anymore. But do you see the the old school Republican Party establishment allowing a convicted felon potentially? To get the nomination. I mean, can you see this happening at the uh, at the convention next August? It would be inexplicable if it did not not be not even because of Trump's legal charges, though, so, though that should count for something. But because Trump is a losing strategy, uh, the red wave that never was. Wh- I mean, what happened there? He everything he touched lost in that in those midterm elections. Um, he was not able to beat Joe Biden. And I think that 
if Trump voters are so serious about having a Republican in office, they might have to swallow their pride and, and look elsewhere because there are Republican primary candidates who could very uh, conceivably beat President Biden in, in, in an election. Um, the Wall Street Journal poll from a couple of weeks ago had Nikki Haley beating him decisively, decisively eight points outside of the margin of error. And it was three points outside of the margin of error. So um, whoever, like you said, I don't know who the establishment is anymore, but yeah. whoever's calling the shots, uh, they, they uh, should really look at the odds here. And I think that it's clear that the odds are not in Trump's favor. Um, do you think DeSantis can turn on the sexy in time to make something happen? Or what's the vibe you get from the voters in New Hampshire and the Republicans you've talked to about uh, the governor of Florida? It's funny because he's still polling strongly in nationally and in, in New Hampshire, but his numbers have dropped since uh, he announced. So he just he's he's polling more strongly than he is second place nationally. I think he's he's tied for third in New Hampshire right now. But uh, I just see him as kind of dropping out of public conversation. People, he really fizzled as a candidate. I think he, it, it was unwise to focus so heavily on the culture wars at the beginning. Um, and frankly, Vivek just does it better. And so for voters who are sympathetic to that, Vivek is, is kind of the new shiny object. But I don't, I, it's going to take a lot of help <laughs> to look sexy up on that stage is what I'll say. I've never seen a, a, a campaign just fizzle out like this. I can't even say it's collapsed, but I mean, he, he walked away from the Disney lawsuit and said, OK, Disney, the fight's done. Uh, uh, you know, like I, I've never seen this kind of collapse. Do you do you see potentially a, a Glenn Youngkin or a fresher face jumping into this race? I mean, I, there there have been rumblings about Glenn Youngkin. That would be really interesting. It's it's if Glenn Youngkin hypothetically jumped in, I think what he would do and what DeSantis could learn from is really focusing on political wins. DeSantis has been a very accomplished governor, and I just think that he focused on the wrong things. And I, I think that his path to redemption, if there is one, is telling Republicans, "Hey, look what I did in Florida. Look at what I did during COVID." look at the look at my um disaster relief and how good i've been during the hurricanes i mean and these are all true he, he's been a very effective governor and he is a winner I, what, what he did in florida during the midterms was a winning strategy and it's the type of winning that trump has not been able to accomplish with anyone he's endorsed so i think that's where you win over republican voters and it's inexplicable to me that that hasn't been uh the desantis lane it seems like the mean tweets strategy killed him. I mean, it just seems like Donald Trump found the right nicknames. I always thought the sanctimonious was was more clever than most people on the left. <laughs> but it, it seems like just Trump was able to squash this. It's remarkable. I think he's he's also just had snafus with funding and campaign staff. And uh, it just seems like everything is going wrong for, for the DeSantis camp right now. Um, but I really do think I mean, I think it would be really easy to transcend even the nicknames if he just said, hey, look what I've done at Florida, because Florida has become the Republican Mecca of the country right now. So uh, it's just, again, inexplicable that he can't make a winning case off of that for Republican voters. Kareen Hajar is on the editorial board at the Boston Globe. Uh, what is the best way for our listeners to follow you and what are you working on next? Um, focusing uh, mostly on immigration, and I will be up in New Hampshire for the rest of this campaign cycle. So uh, you can follow me at, on Twitter at Kareen Hajar too, and check me out on the Boston Globe website. 
Thank you so much for joining us on SiriusXM Progress. I really appreciate you coming. Thanks for having me on. It's been great. Come back anytime. It's always open to you. We got to take a very quick break. We'll be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Okay, I'm very fond of saying on this show that current events are not always current. And 40 years ago, the Reagan administration published a report called A Nation at Risk, a report that is still affecting the way inequality is mass produced in this country. This report solidified the idea that American public schools were falling so far behind the standards of other Western countries, and we got to do something really fast. Now, a sane society would say, "Okay, well, let's spend whatever we have to spend to ensure Americans have the finest public school system in the world, lift children out of poverty and make the entire nation stronger for generations to come. But that's not what happened. This was the Reagan years. And we have now lived with 40 years since of public schools teaching standardized tests, teaching to the test in many cases, private interests increasingly being allowed to infiltrate our educational system through charter schools, whitewashing of what charter schools are and how many children fall through the cracks and are deliberately left behind. Also, no child left behind and waivers. And of course, how Nixon's war on drugs was merged with Reagan to become a war on black children, increasing racial and class strategy within the schools and between different school districts. I am so pleased to welcome our next guest. Dr. Bettina Love is the William F. Russell Professor at Teachers College, Columbia University. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Punished for Dreaming, How School Reform Harms Black Children and How We Heal. In this book, Dr. Love argues rather forcefully that it was Reagan's presidency that ushered in this war on black children, penalizing them in concert with the war on drugs. She is an 80s kid, and the book shows how her own youth was shaped by a public school divided into two worlds, where there was opportunity for one group of kids and possible incarceration for the other. Throughout the book, she asks why, instead of learning, are black students, in her words, punished with low expectations physical violence, surveillance, standardized testing, and frequent suspensions. It is a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Bettina Love to SiriusXM. Oh, thank you, John, so much for having me. It's wonderful to be with you tonight. Thank you. Thank you. With with, with all of this uh, negative propaganda about critical race theory and the disinformation we've heard about DEI and race-based affirmative action being deemed unconstitutional and book bans, I, I can't believe how timely this book is. Thank you for writing it. What led you, doctor, to write this particular work at this particular time? Well, you know, I think I've been trying to write this book for a very long time. When I was writing this book, I had no clue that I was kind of mapping out the history of what's going on and how we got here. But I'm from upstate New York. I'm from Rochester, New York. And I went to a really big high school in upstate New York. Uh, My high school was so big, we had a plane in it. I went to a vocational high school. Mm -hmm. And I entered high school with almost 600, 700 kids. And four years later, about 160, 180 of those kids graduated. And I remember walking across the stage asking myself a really critical question at 17 years old. Where did everybody go? Yeah. We had an auditorium supposed to be packed with parents and balloons and cheering. 
And I was just like, where did everybody go? And I don't think it's a coincidence. I become an educator. I become a professor who researches educational policy. I've always been curious about what happened to my generation, what happened to kids like me. And this book is something that I've been really trying to write, I think, since I walked across that stage at 17 years old. Um, that's one of the most powerful parts in the book. And of course, it's a culture that you were born into that makes it really, really easy for even the most well-intentioned citizens to turn a blind eye to the disproportionate Ooh. conviction and incarceration and dropout rates of some kids. I, I, When you were writing this, did you have any idea how important it would be right in the <laughs> middle of the word woke being weaponized and critical race theory being, wep- being, being distorted and the banning of any books that center on black people or the queer experience? Not at all. You know, I just really wanted to tell my generation. I really wanted to tell our stories. But as I started writing and as I went from, you know, post before Brown versus the Board of Education to after Brown versus the Board of Education, and then I moved into the 80s and 90s and I got to the 2000s, I realized, oh my word, this is how we got here. This is how we get the book bans and the CRT bans and the bans on queer folks. It's through these policies, it's through these reforms. And I really had no idea that I was writing that history. I just wanted to write about my generation, but I feel very honored and feel very blessed that I got an opportunity at the time that I'm writing this book. And this book is coming out that is speaking to what's happening right now and giving people an understanding that what is happening right now isn't just happenstance. It's not just, you know, coming out of nowhere. It's been a full assault, very organized attack on public education. And what we're seeing now is the culmination of so many attacks over the years. And there have been books, you know, about that in the past. But what your book does and why I think it's a, a, a something that moral smart people need to give each other as a Christmas gift is really tracing the line between how education is now being used to destabilize democracy. Yeah. You know, I, I really spent a lot of time on Reagan in this book. And I think the 80s, because I'm an 80s baby. I was born in 1979. I went to school in 1986. So I'm an 80s baby. But I, I don't think we pay enough attention to what happened in the 80s and how crime reform and school reform start to merge. And so just to give your listeners just a few entry points to really think about that is, you know, 1982, Reagan declares a war on drugs, which we know is a war on black people. By 1983, like you opened up with the report, A Nation at Risk is probably one of the most consequential educational reports of all time, which was filled with cherry picked and misleading data that painted public education in its worst light. And there was a lot of data at that time that said public education is doing okay. It's not the best, but we're doing okay. There's also data at that time that said public education is doing pretty good, but they didn't use that data. 1983 is also the same year of DARE, the DARE program. What is the DARE program? The DARE program puts police in our schools. Uh, It says there are bad folks and there's good folks and those bad folks gotta go, we gotta disappear them. So the D.A.R.E. program is also an entity that starts to help this idea of the war on drugs within our communities. The D.A.R.E. program is created by Daryl Gates, who is Daryl Gates. That's right. He's the same police chief uh, during the Rodney King beating. Uh, The Rodney King, I would say, attempted execution. He's also the same police chief that said that black folks have different esophagus, so it's okay to put us in the chokehold. But then by 1984, Reagan comes out with another report that's filled with misleading data called Chaos in the Classroom, which says that these kids are so disorderly and they're so rude that we need police in schools. Uh-huh. And then the backdrop of all of this is three strikes and super predators and crack babies and thugs and broken window theory. And so you start mm-hmm. to see how crime reform 
and school reform begin to merge for the disposal of black children and the policies and the you know, law enforcement, politicians, first ladies, everybody has their eyes and their targets on the backs of black children. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that then began the golden age of privatized prisons yes. and mass incarceration, three strikes laws, judges having yes. no power to have any discretion over their sentencing and a $55 billion a year business taxpayers pay for to lock up predominantly black and brown people, predominantly for nonviolent drug offenses. There you go. And so and I think throughout history, we've had great documentaries, the 13th crack that have shown how just disproportionate and how racist and anti-black these policies were. I mean, we could talk about crack and cocaine and the, and the sentencing, but I don't think yeah. we have talked about what was happening schooling wise during that time. And this book really tries to say, if you if you understand what was happening when it came to a war on drugs and the crack epidemic and and the policing and all, you know, the expansion of the prisons, what do you think was happening with schools at this time as well? So the book really wants to set our attention on the very idea that if you think that is happening outside the school, guess what's happening inside the school? The same exact type of policies and punitive measures against black and brown children. I mean, I I blame the war on drugs, you know, as much on Nixon as I do on Reagan. But Reagan That's made it fact. something even even more sinister. And again, again, Nixon's war on drugs. We know this. His own people ratted him out. It was grounded in racism. But mm-hmm. can you go further into more detail about how the war on drugs impacted school policies? Because you're right. Our public school system in many cases is in lockstep with the policies of mass incarceration. Yeah, well, thank you for that question. You know, we start to see cops in schools, right? We start to see metal detectors and dogs in schools in the 80s and 90s and by the 2000s. You know, this is just something that we know is common. We start to see Reagan spend billions of dollars um, putting more police and prosecutors in communities. And so all of these things begin to merge. There's more cops on the streets. There's more cops in schools. We have more funding for prosecutors. We have less funding for teacher increasing teacher salaries for social workers, for um, nurses in schools. We start to see the defunding of that happening within schools. And so you Mm -hmm. can start to track how funding goes here for criminality. Funding goes here to say that black folks are, are presumed guilty all the time. But the funding that we need, the things that we need for a thoughtful, loving, flourishing education system. And I think you alluded to this. If the education system was doing so badly, our response shouldn't be incarceration. Our response should be more teachers, pay teachers better, smaller classrooms, state-of-the-art schools, more curriculum. And so we start to see that what has happened over society is when our politicians law enforcement, these individuals create a crisis. And then they say, "We here's a crisis, and then we're gonna come in and reform this crisis. You can't reform the crisis that you created. And so we see this time and time again, and we start to see schools change overnight. We start to see schools have zero tolerance policies. How do you have a zero tolerance policy with children? I'm a child. I'm supposed to get as many chances as possible. I'm eight. I'm supposed to get on your nerves. I'm supposed to lose my temper. I am eight. And so you start to see things like no excuses and zero tolerance policies enter into school policy, which are the same policies that we're seeing in the criminal, what we would call the criminal punishment system. 
And you know what? And you you nail the problem with charter schools. I, I'm not inherently against the concept. I mm-hmm. made a film for PBS at Harlem Children's Zone with Jeffrey Canada. I, I appreciate the great educators in the field. But it seems that the entire system, especially the voucher system, has a two-pronged effect. Number one, of trying to get public funds used to indoctrinate people with unconstitutional religious propaganda, but also mm-hmm. to create a dynamic where school choice sounds great, except it's not open to everyone. And it's a system that systemically is designed to help our youth that need the most support instead fall through the cracks and render public schools the ghetto where the difficult children are and privileged children get a private education. Well, I mean, you're exactly right, John. You know, what I say in my book is that, you know, school choice is what school choice are the choices that black folks get once white folks have divvied up what they want. And then they call it school choice. Yeah. And but I also want us to understand and I'm someone against I'm not against charter schools as an entity, but I don't think most people understand how charter schools function as a mechanism to privatize education. Mm-hmm. And so what do I mean by that is we have philanthropists, we have corporate execs, anybody that has a hedge fund probably has money stacked away in and and supporting charter schools and funding charter schools. There are many tax breaks that they get for charter schools. And also charter schools is a way to take private dollars away from public entities. And so at the end of the day, even though there are some great charter schools, I know some great people who work for charter schools. I have worked for a charter school myself. But we also have to understand that when you are trying to defund, you are trying to privatize education, charter schools is a way that they do that. And it seems like it's a choice. It seems like it's under the school choice mantra, but it is deceptive. It is smoke and mirrors. And so the larger conversation has to be about what is the intention of charter schools and how charter schools allow them to destabilize public education. My guest is Dr. Bettina Love. Her excellent, gripping, and essential new book is called Punished for Dreaming, How School Reforms Harm Black Children and How We Heal. Um, One of the things I love about your book is you feature the accounts of 25 different uh, black individuals. And I'd like to ask, why did you choose and how did you choose these 25 particular stories to frame uh, the mission you are trying to explain? Thank you for that question. It was it was really important because I think too often when we talk about reform, we talk about policy, you know, we really don't get into how it impacted real people's lives. We talk about data and, you know, we give a few data entry and a few points and we move on. And what I really wanted to show was that policy and reform, it impacts real people's lives. There's people behind these policies. We're not just making policies benign and benevolent and they just go off and everybody lives their good lives. No, policies have impact. They have an impact on real people's lives. And so I interviewed a ton of people for this book. Only 25 made it. Um, I have an amazing, I have amazing doc students. I was at the University of Georgia when I was writing this book. My doc students, we interviewed, we found people on social media. We found people on Facebook. We tracked down some people. And so it was really trying to take the stories that I was learning and then seeing which decade, which policy, which reform really reflected what they was what they were telling me. Um, and I'm really honored that I was able that these individuals trusted me with their stories and trusted me with their lives to tell it. And there's a really a lot of amazing 
twists and turns with these people's lives that I hope as people read the book, they see the human side of reform. They see the human side of policy and just how one policy can impact a whole family, a whole generation. Yeah. Um, and I was really hoping to, to, I was really honored that I got that opportunity to interview these individuals. You know, with I agree, and it's it's having the personal stories uh, makes it such a, a moving read. With these race-based uh, affirmative action policies now being deemed unconstitutional at private universities, um, and then the book bans we're seeing, uh, and then of course Ron DeSantis trying to ban AP African American Studies. I mean, it's so easy to get discouraged. How how do you recommend people fight back in the most productive ways? Yeah, you know, I, I think it is. It's hard not to get discouraged. I, I don't. I don't want to downplay that. You know, they have been able to organize. They're very well funded, and they've gotten a lot done in a short amount of time. But I also want us to be very clear that the people have always won. And so when we say power to the people, we mean that. And so we have to organize. We have to fight back. We have to. You know, there's there's public school is not the only place to teach our children. We can teach our children at the church. We can teach them at the Boys and Girls Club. We can teach them at the rec center. We can teach them at the park. And so this history is not the only, we, we don't only have to teach this history at school. And so we can get creative. And if you know anything about black folks and the history of black folks in this country, oh, we have always got creative to teach our babies. And so I'm hmm. always encouraged by the history of black folks and the current way that black folks have always maneuvered, outmaneuvered, overmaneuvered structures and systems to do what's best for our children. You know, the one thing I'm encouraged by is that the idea of public education is a black idea, you know, particularly in the South. There was no idea of public education until black folks made public education in the South. So we've always educated our children. We've always thought very deeply about education as liberation. And you may be able to ban a few books here and there, but you will not ban black creativity. Bless you for saying so. What does the average well-intentioned American need to understand, doctor, about reparations? So, you know, I think people get caught up in the idea that someone will get a check. And yes, someone will get a check because harm has been done. But I want people to understand and what I write about in the book is that the fullness of reparations will have an impact, a, a positive impact on everyone. So what do I mean by that is, first of all, beyond a check, which is important, but also to say, I'm going to atone for harm. I'm going to end harm. I'm going to transform and stop doing what I'm doing that's harmful to people. That will impact all of us. And so the fullness of reparations is not just about compensation, which is important, but it's also the, also about changing structures and systems that will change. And so in the book, I outlined that for my generation, you know, just my generation, we're about $2 trillion in just educational harm that has been done. But the yeah. beauty about that is if we were to if we were to take schooling serious in this country and really start to focus on black education and invest in black education, 88 percent of all teachers are white women. White women would benefit from black from reparations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they are the teachers. But so much of this book is about how making things better for African-Americans makes yes. things better for white people, too. Yes, that is the, the logic and the morality of the work. <laughs> it's fascinating. I mean, throughout history, black folks fight for 
voting rights. We fight for education. We, we, we fight for this country to be a democracy. We fight to integrate schools. Like when we fight for justice in this country, this country is better. This country wins. And the same thing with reparations. It will it would better all of our schools. It would better teachers right now. And you think about the schools that we need. We have schools in this country that don't have clean water. Yeah. We have schools in this country where the air is terrible and it is causing what we would say environmental racism within our schools. So if, what would it mean for us to invest in urban schools and all schools to have 21st century education? That's jobs. That's so many jobs. Everybody uh-huh. benefits. And so reparations is the starting place of justice. And it's, if and, you and- really are serious about justice, you are serious about reparations. Absolutely. And, you know, a living wage workforce is good for capitalism. Um, (laughs) And and I want to just say, I think one of the most powerful parts of your book, and I'd like you to just share it with our audience now, is how you feel that black liberation is liberation for all of us. Yes. You know, I I feel very strongly about that because it is through black people that this country has gotten liberation. I mean, you take... You take Brown versus the Board of Education, which is one of the most historical cases that, you know, to integrate schools. And Brown versus the Board of Education was a case that was political. You had other countries looking at the United States saying, how dare you say you're a beacon of hope? How dare you call yourself a democracy? Look what you're doing to African-Americans. And African-Americans integrated these schools. We sent our six-year-olds, Ruby Bridges, a six-year-old little girl. Yeah to a white mob screaming the nastiest racist epithets at a little girl. And we sent her the Bridges family. She's six years old. She needs four U.S. Marshals to go to school. She's not allowed to eat anything in that school. She sits there for a year by herself. But it's a sacrifice that we make. It's a sacrifice that her family makes. Why? Because we believe in democracy. We believe that our children are deserving of an education. And so Brown versus the Board of Education is a unanimous decision. Why? Because it shows this world. The United States wants to show this world that it can be a democracy. And so whenever we fight, whenever we strive, this country wins. And so I I believe that black folks are the keepers of democracy. We speak, we show, we fight, we protest, we march. And when we do that, it liberates all of us. Please run for office. Um, Dr. Bettina Love (laughs) is the William Russell Professor at Teachers College, Columbia University. Her essential book is Punished for Dreaming, How School Reform Harms Black Children and How We Heal. The audiobook version is also available, and Dr. Love herself reads the introduction to it as well. Doctor, how can our listeners follow you and keep up with your work? Well, thank you so much for having me. This is a real honor. Um, You can all check me out at BettinaLove.com. And if you go to my website under Toolkit, we uh, produced an album for this book. So this book also comes with an album, an album about black joy, about creativity. There's also a coloring book for kids. And so if you're reading the book and you need a little stress reliever or you want to give it to your kids, there's a coloring book on freedom dreaming and black freedom and what that looks like. And then there's also a study guide that goes along with the book that will help you and guide you as you read the book. So BettinaLove.com, you can find me there. I'm on my book tour and I just really appreciate you having me on tonight. Oh, I love it. Please come back here anytime. This platform is always open to you, doctor. We got to take a quick break. We will be right back. This is Progress.
back to Sirius XM. Our thanks to Dr. Bettina Love. Um, what a day of history we are experiencing. The first sitting president to ever show up on a picket line. A judge essentially dissolved Donald Trump's businesses in the state of New York. Man, he blew his inheritance from both his dad and Barack Obama. The Supreme Court actually tells Alabama, no, you guys are too racist for us. And in the middle of all of this, the dam has broken against Senator Bob Menendez. More than 20 of his Senate Democratic colleagues are calling for his resignation as he battles federal bribery charges. This time last night, it was only three Democratic senators. What has shifted? For more, I need somebody smarter than me and more moral than me. And let's be honest, more rude than me. That is why people of Earth, whether you like it or not, we have the Rude Pundit. Lee Papa is the Rude Pundit. He has tens of thousands of weekly readers. He's a regular guest on the Stephanie Miller Show. He's played all over the country. You can support him and get even more content from Lee on Patreon under the username Rude Pundit. Lee Papa, welcome back. Happy end of the Trump org day. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and, and and it seems like every day it's just something new. Every every minute where it where we're on this Trump roller coaster. Uh, you're exactly right. Yeah. And there's a lot I want to get to. But l- let me start by asking about Menendez, because last night on the show, I, I, I'll be honest, Lee, I was hopping mad. I was talking about Al Franken and how we had more than 25 senators demanding Al Franken resign. And he never got to have an investigation, um, not to diminish the accusations against Al Franken, which I think some people do a bit. Uh, they deserve to be heard. They deserve to have their grievances aired. But Menendez, I mean, the guy's got over half a million dollars in cash lying around the house, $100,000 in gold bars hanging around the house. And as of last night, it was only three senators calling for him to leave. Something shifted overnight. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I don't know if it was Cory Booker um, saying that he was going to make a statement and that's what did it. But uh, yeah, you're right. The floodgates open. What are we up to? 26 Democratic senators 26 now? already? Wow. Wow. Yeah, we're up to 26, I think. And uh, so that's a majority of the of the Democratic caucus. And uh, and, and, you know, what's funny is I don't believe any Republican senators yet have called on him to resign. Nope. Nope. But but by the way, um, only uh, I think a handful of Republicans have called for the deeply indicted George Santos to step down. What exactly is. Yeah. So 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 the so the, the you know the, it's it's very odd that they here's the chance that they have to pile on a, an indicted Democrat, mm-hmm. and they are just saying no we we don't want to we don't want to get into that sort of you know logical conundrum of saying that since he's indicted he shouldn't be in office. I mean, I guess uh, I don't know, for whatever reason, they're they're deciding to not speak out against Joe Biden's weaponized Department of Justice. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry, man. You got Hunter Biden last week and now this this week. It's taking away a lot of bullshit narratives. Uh, Susan Collins, the, the bravest Republican in the Senate. I'm not even kidding. Um, she said the charges are extremely serious. But it's up to him and the voters of New Jersey to make the resignation uh, decision. J.D. Vance that paragon of morality said whether Bob Menendez steps down as a decision for the voters of New Jersey. Clearly, the guy's been accused of some pretty crazy stuff, but we do have innocence until proven guilty here. 
I hate to agree with J.D. Vance, but it's true. We do. And the last time this guy was facing indictment, of course, 2017, there were no Democrats calling for his ouster because Chris Christie was governor back then. Right. Christie yeah. could have yeah. appointed whoever he wanted to replace him. Now, there's a primary nine months away, and it's a lot safer for Democrats to say it's time to go. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, you know, I think it was Eric Erickson that that tweeted something about, you know, oh, well, this is only happening because it's a safe Democratic seat. And I'm just like, I'm just like, yeah, duh. I mean, I but mean, no, it's I, not. I'm sorry. I hate to disagree with Eric I mean, it's Erickson, not, not but, a, that it, it yeah. is safe. It is safe for now. I mean, it's no, you're right. It could the the, the Senate the, when the election comes up, it could very easily go to a Republican. But I mean, um, not for nothing. But what he's accused of is so much worse than what George Santos is accused oh, of. Yeah. I mean, this guy, head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, yes. and he's taking bribes from the dictatorship of Egypt, and he has yes. a Mercedes-Benz convertible in his garage yes. that was a gift. I'm making air quotes on the radio, I apologize. And he's got $100,000 <laughs> in gold bars lying around the house. I mean... No, and and we, we and you know you know let's not forget the 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 four hundred fifty five hundred fifty thousand dollars I think in cash, yeah that 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 he says you know he just kept out because of some kind of you know paranoia about having funding that comes from his parents having gotten out of uh, Cuba in nineteen fifty three, and. Um, <laughs> at the beginning, at the he said this, he said this. I know the, he went there. At, and and it's like and it's like yeah, but if it's your money, why are you keeping it high, hidden in the jacket pockets in your hanging in your closet? <laughs> Let, let's at least treasure for a moment that how old fashioned um, a thing this is. This kind of this kind of blatant oh. bribery. I, I was I, saying last night, this is Soprano season four shit with a with a it, hefty bag in the backyard. It really is. It really is. But you're right, though. I mean, it is pretty horrific. And, you know, thankfully, like the Star Ledger in in, uh, in the, one of the New Jersey papers has been all over saying, you know, what he what he helped support was horrendous, being very clear that it's one of the most brutal regimes that he helped pave the way to make life easier for torturers. Mm-hmm. And um, and, you know, and, and that there should be that 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 none of his excuses at this point make any sense at all, considering that, that, that there was an obvious almost one to one quid pro quo going on between the between the, the, the bribes and and action Amazing. that he took. I mean, and, even and, when he was just, you know, the Mercedes, the Mercedes is the most absurd thing. It's like it. and then he what did he do? He did something to sort of to end a an investigation of uh, of, of somebody's finances. I mean, three he, bus- three Egyptian businessmen. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it looks great. Looks great, Lee. <laughs> you know, and, and let's be fair. After Sadat was brutally assassinated by his own people for the crime of making peace with Israel, let's not forget Jimmy Carter's greatest achievement, the, one of the greatest yeah. moments of American governance in my lifetime. Mubarak took over and every administration since then, and I'll include Democrats and Republicans. He was our ally, so they didn't mind yeah. the torture. And under George W. Bush, we outsourced torture to Mubarak and his goons. So there's a lot of dirtiness going on. But when I found out, Lee, that the FBI had found out that Menendez had searched on his home computer, how much is a kilo of gold worth in cash? <laughs> He's, I mean, it, it just, he, he dodged a bullet with a hung jury six years ago. It would have been know. so how easy do you for not- this guy. How, how? 
Yeah, yeah. No, no. And he should have waited just until New Jersey got another Republican governor to see if uh, before he started doing this again. And then, you know, Democrats would have probably backed off. But I can oh, speak. Brilliant. I, right. he, I, he is my senator. I live in New yeah. Jersey. And, you know, and I was thrilled when Cory Booker came out today and called on him to resign because that was the big one that that everyone was waiting for here. I mean, Phil Murphy, you know, right out front, you know, the first of the of the of the big New Jersey Democrats to come out and say, no, you got to get out of there um, to Menendez. And then and and then so the, the, the New Jersey Democratic Party is unified on this. And considering, you know, how much Menendez has done for them over the decades, it's a pretty big leap to make to say, you know, get the fuck out of here now. You it is. fucking You're idiot. Right. You got away with it and you That's couldn't it. fucking stop. That's it's it's like it's embarrassing. That's the other thing is like it's crime at an embarrassing level. You got away with something ridiculous because of a hung Hung jury. jury. Yep. (laughs) And, And you couldn't stop. You're so right, Lee. And, and you know, it, it's I have this saying I always use about the sex scandals. Um, Dems eject them. Republicans reelect them. Dems don't wait anymore. You're accused of something. You're out. You can be replaced. And I've come to admire it. They're ruthless with their own. And it, it sometimes it feels like a circular firing squad. But, Lee, I, I, I don't think Bob Menendez is still going to be working in the Senate by Christmas. Do you? Oh, I no. think just no. even having the because the, the, they can't use Santos against the Republicans if they've got Menendez in their midst. They have to have the purity going into next year. And you know the Republicans aren't going to eject their criminals. They're going to go on defending Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, that's the thing is like you cannot look you cannot sit there and say that 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 you don't you can't you don't want to elect this indicted guy. And, you know, admittedly for far worse crimes, Trump. Um, But, you know, but then in any way stand by Menendez. Now, again, there's there there is a way. I mean, they've got to get Sh- Schumer and Durbin after that embarrassing Sunday interview um, yeah. where he was asked flat out and didn't even, you know, oh. didn't. Yeah, no. He, and, and, and he could have sort of beat around the bush on it and left it open. But, you know, the fact that he just sat there supporting him, yeah. it was sad. And it's that's sad. Why, not That's why Durbin's Durbin. Yeah. And 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 Schumer's statement was sad. But, um, you know, Democrats are getting out ahead on this. So at least rhetorically, if not in action, they can uh, they can say, okay, we want Menendez to step down. Yeah. What can they do? I mean, I guess will would Republicans join them in 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 ejecting him from the Senate? I mean, well, I mean, they can they can censure him in the Senate. He's already had to step down from his committee. He will never be the head of that committee again. But does this take away the Donald Trump argument of the weaponized DOJ? Because I do think this has more than a little to do, at least in the political sphere, with Donald Trump's two federal indictments. No, don't you understand, John? Don't you understand? This is all a setup. This is oh, all right. a setup so that uh, so that so that they can pretend like something's going on, uh, so that they can go ahead <laughs> with 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 prosecuting Donald Trump. I mean, you're right. You're right. Yeah. It's all, but all these all these prosecutions of Trump's fraud is just a deep state Marxist hoax to make Trump commit more fraud. Uh, Lee, I want to ask you about Cassidy Hutchinson, but you want to talk to some listeners first, and we'll take some calls sure. from our evil army of the night. Let's go to the you phones, know guys. We are at eight six six nine nine seven Grit. Brian in Oregon, thank you for your patience on hold. You're hey, on Sirius XM with the Rude Pundit. 
Hi, Rude. How rude are you? I'm, uh, I'm feeling fucking rude. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, um, the uh, um, but I'm the Medinda thing. I, I'm, uh, I'm with you guys. He, he should be uh, retired to a golf. Co- well, probably a nice golf course in the federal prison. But uh, <laughs> the, anyway, do they have go- do those guys get to play golf in prison? You know, Some the of them do. If you, if you go to a nice one, as I was saying earlier, like Otisburg, great golf course. You know, uh, there, <laughs> there's some really good ones there. Yeah. 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 I don't uh, think the I'm, Democrats actually care if he goes to jail or not. I don't think anyone cares if he goes to jail well, or not. I think he's got to get out of the Senate. Well, yeah. what a weirdo. I mean, he's, he's probably loaded from his years in the Senate anyways. Um, yeah, I don't see how that works either, by the way, Lee. How I know the Senate is paid, you know, six figures and they get a, a hell of a pension. But how does a senator have half a million dollars in cash he can pull out of the bank? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 if only we all did could. He make really good investments. I mean, you know, <laughs> what? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, uh, he's, he's probably got a money tree like Johnny Cash. Yeah, he's, song, he's uh, clearly good he at is. long-term strategies in his life. You're yeah. right, yeah. Yeah. But. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but John, I'm thinking... And Lee, the people need to start looking back at Trump and, and unions and workers. And I was remembering about the whole carrier air conditioning uh, bit where he went there uh, before he was elected saying he was gonna yeah. not, not going to let that plant leave and he was going to save these jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyone wins, he goes there and, and says he's saved their jobs. And then he doesn't do anything. And then, like, what was it, like two months later, the plant moves to Mexico? Yeah. Exactly. But again, it didn't matter what the reality was. What mattered were the images on Fox News that night. That's what matters. He's playing them all. Yes. Yes. He's going. I mean, Lee, you know, this Donald Trump is going to 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 Michigan tomorrow and the UAW said, we don't want to see you. You serve the billionaire class. So he's going to go to a non-union auto factory to talk to retired workers. And, you know, Fox and Newsmax will present this as Donald Trump showed up to show his support. When in reality, he's always supported management, just like his entire political party. Yeah. Yeah. And the only unions that ever supported him were the police unions. I mean, you know, that that's the thing is like it's 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 ridiculous that that this guy who spent his career when he actually was building things, trying to crush unions or go be go outside of unions and fought with unions all the time, nickel and dimed them. I mean, I mean, you know, he he. He has had a long animus towards unions. And, uh, you know, it's like fucking Josh Hawley showing up. Did you see that? Josh (laughs) Hawley showing up in... Yeah, in Ohio. And it's like, fuck you, man. This guy has a zero percent rating from the UAW as far as his support of of their workers. And it's and and they're just trying so hard to 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 in some way, you know, spin their 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 working class, you know, the credibility that they have with the white working class and say and try to say this is going to translate into support of unions. It's it, all they're seeing is that that workers are actually finally realizing, oh, fuck, unions work, you yes. know? Yes, that and the nanny. I mean, Fran, between Fran Drescher's speech and Joe Biden's appearance today and, of course, yeah. the workers themselves and not to be outdone, the Starbucks workers. This has been a golden age of yeah. unionization and awareness of what collective bargaining is in this century. Yeah. And it's the and, and an awareness that the billionaire class is never going to do anything willingly. They are Ooh. going to have to be fought and they're going to have to feel threatened. I mean, that's the that's the success of the writer's strike is they 
they hung tight and you know yeah. you know a lot of, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, unions have been complimenting the WGA and saying you know you were inspiring the other the teamsters that 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 run the other uh the, the other you know the other things on movie and TV sets have said you've inspired us you know that's it yeah that, that you hung tough and it's cause you make them hurt make them hurt so they can fucking see what they need to do brian thank you so much for the call i appreciate you joining us lee in our final moments uh cassidy hutchinson it's kind of gossipy um but you know it's kind of nice hearing that she turned down matt gates it is her that and uh and that she was told just say i don't know and she said or i don't remember and she actually sat there and thought i can't do that you know, and uh, but, you know, you've got to just love I, I so love the detail of Mark Meadows wife getting annoyed at the smell of burning documents in his clothing. I mean, that's some, you know, that's some shit right out of Veep. I mean, that is just mm. that is it is Antonio Iannucci stuff. And as a friend of mine said, I hope I hope he writes the movie version of this. Uh, I mean, Gates said in a statement to MSNBC that he did date Cassidy for a few weeks when they were both single years ago. And she said, I will say on behalf of myself, I never dated Matt Gates. I have much higher standards in men. Gossipy right wing bullshit has never been so enjoyable and so deeply morally fulfilling. Yes, I think so. I think so. Who would have thought that? <laughs> I just love the idea that 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 that, that Matt Gates might have mixed up Cassidy Hutchinson with somebody else that he dated. You know, I don't know if that says some, who that says something about. But let's also, you know, be clear that, you know, Cassidy Hutchinson also went along with a whole hell of a lot of a whole bunch of well, shit. Yeah, for we will never time. forget. She she yeah. was fine. She she was fine through the end of the administration and went to work in Mar-a-Lago. So absolutely. But, you know. Yep. Better late than never. Uh, Lee, we've only got like a minute left. Any predictions for tomorrow night's Republican debate other than the fact that Vivek Ramaswamy will come off like Eddie Haskell after doing a night of blow with uh, with uh, James Woods? I think we we need to see if uh, Ron DeSantis has practiced smiling. I mean, oh, I, I, think, hope so. I think there's I hope always so. the creep level to see, you know, just how much it makes our spines, t uh, you know. Just, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. How, what approximation of human will he be? And uh, and if they'll act, and if they'll actually get any questions that fucking matter. Yeah, good good point. We always know that Ron DeSantis has been asked a hard question because he says out loud, "Recalculating, recalculating." <laughs> um, Lee Papa, you're the best at what you do. What is the best way for our evil army of the night to follow you and keep up with your work? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Rude Pundit. You can join my Patreon at patreon.com slash Rude Pundit. And this week marks the 20th anniversary of my blog, rudepundit.blogspot.com. That's right. It's still it's still not old enough to, to buy alcohol, but you know what? That's never stopped it before. Uh, well, it's too old for Matt Gates to date. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, happy anniversary. 